It's a good question, and sometimes it has baffled me, you know, because you think, I mean, usually when you hit walls like this, you think, you know, I'm out of here. But that's never been the fact that I've distrusted the monastic vehicle. I've just, I've just seen that there's gotten things that have gotten twisted up in the institutionalization of it. And so part of it is, is the gratitude that I feel and the potency of this life that I have never lost contact with, even though the journey obviously has been rough at times. Yeah. But the other part of it is, is that part of my life as a monastic has been to not be living in the monastery and to be traveling around the world. And for all large portions of that time, I didn't have a community supporting me, a benefactor supporting me, a sponsor supporting me, and I didn't have a home base. So I was living as an alms mendicant without any of those supports, very much from one minute to the next minute, or one week to the next week, or one month to the next month, and for much of that time, shaking in my shoes with how utterly terrifying it was until my own primal fears started to relax and the confidence then began to be more the place that I was relaxing into. It was the confidence of the practice and it was the confidence in the goodness of the, of the, of the world that will offer support without it being located anywhere. Because I have already experienced that, and know both how incredibly challenging it is, but that it is something that I have managed to survive and have been strengthened as a result of it, I was willing to do this this time. But I have a lot of um, sympathy, empathy for people who make different choices. And of the eight who in the last four months have decided to leave the community, Many of them are disrobing. They're done. They're cooked. They're finished. With seeing this as a vehicle for liberation. My question isn't so much about the monastic vehicle, as you call it, but actually the practice itself. How do you explain such intellectual rigidity and the sort of rigidity of spirit that you're, as you describe it, among people who've been practicing for so many years. And what does that say about the practice itself from your perspective? I, my intuition about what has been happening is, is, is that unless a person keeps their aspiration to wake up as their bottom line, then it can easily shift to something else. And my sense of what has happened is is that the, the longing to belong superseded their aspiration to awaken. And then what started to happen was, in order to protect the group identity, there was a moving away from staying in empathetic relationship with the people, the sisters, who they were making these decisions about. That was, I think that's the, to me that's the bottom line. 
I think they used the fact that, you know, with Ajahn Sumedho getting older and going to be handing over or retiring or somehow passing on in one way or another, that the what the logic that they were saying was is that unless they went back to what was laid down in the Vinaya in terms of the right relationship between the monks and the nuns, then there wouldn't be a way that it would continue. But to me, that logic was a justification rather than a reason. And in terms of the practice, you know, what I can say is, is, is that as potent as the practice is, it is actually a different quality to be willing to stay open to the blind spots that one has and bring attention there and use different tools if that's needed. So the longing to belong is a psychological need that is actually incredibly deep. It's so primal that it's actually hard to see that that's what's operating. And so that's my best guess of what's been going on. I would agree that it is does not inspire confidence, you know. But I can also see that it has had this level of power that this is what has resulted. Referring to what? To the fact that these um, policies were were. Um, you mean the primal need is, has that much power? Yeah. Not, not the practice has that much power. That's right. The primal need has that much power that if there aren't very, very clear safeguards in the practice, it goes unnoticed. That that's actually operating. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about equanimity and kind of struggle. Um, and, you know, not only to be organizing to kind of draft this, this statement, but then coming up against this, you know, kind of terrible position. How to, like, act passionately and still well I think it comes from really understanding your intention you know for me and you know obviously I've had to do a lot of work with anger because I, it probably wouldn't be very surprising to realize that there was a certain amount of anger that was arising but I had to realize that if I was speaking from anger or acting from anger that in a way that I was um, disempowering my conviction and so, you know, when this would come back to a place of conviction rather than from a place of anger, it was much, much more powerful. And the other thing that I had to recognize was is, is that, you know, there were some situations where I realized that I was, at a, I was at the person's limit. They couldn't do more. They couldn't relate more, understand more, empathize more. They couldn't be aware more. They were at their capacity. And I had to drop any sense of any further conversation. So part of the way I navigated this was by being extremely sensitive to who I was speaking to and where they were at and not push, you know. So I knew my own ground and I knew what made sense to me and I knew what my bottom line was and I could feel and sense where they were at and not push them. But obviously, you know, there's been tears, there's been grief, there's been rage, there's been a whole huge thing of how do you recover from dealing with this kind of stuff in this kind of situation, which is that this is not like an administrator who lives in a building 
This is your teacher. These are your community. These are the people you've lived with for 20 years. But the principles are the same. And ultimately, I've had to come back to really, really trusting that the conviction that I felt was not, was had to be honored. And it had to be honored no matter what the consequences were. And that as I stood in that, then it gave the strength to do what I've had to do. As well as it's given me the sensitivity to be careful not to push in places where there was no more room. But, you know, so basically, you know, what happened was is that I, I navigated the circumstances very skillfully and then as soon as it was safe, fell apart. Are you now a full ordained nun or samanara? Or, it wasn't there some distinction how the nuns at Alora Bhakti and Shithurst were not fully, completely ordained nuns? Yeah, so we were in an awkward position because, you know, Nobody started any of this with any bad intention. It was all very noble. You know, there were women who wanted to train, and it was controversial to give the bhikkhuni ordination in Thailand. And yet the reason why we were asking for a higher ordination was because of the fact that the, 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 the lesser ordination doesn't give enough structure for community life. So it didn't come out of an idealism. It came out of a practical need. You know, a lot of, like, the bhikkhuni patimoka or the bhikkhu patimoka is structuring community life. And so your relationships with each other are clearer, okay? So after living a number of sisters where it had the eight precepts and they realized the shortcoming of that form, then it was from that that they asked for the higher ordination. And so it was, it was noble. It was wanting to create a situation that gave the sisters the higher ordination and brought forward some of the training of the bhikkhuni ordination, but didn't actually have the controversy in it. So we, we had technically a ten-precept ordination, but realistically, our recitation had 132 rules. And so our life was very much more um, governed by the recitation than by the ordination, if you know what I mean. So the way we conducted our community was based on this recitation was only specifically created for the Siladar community. There were no other sisters in the whole world that was living that way. So even though technically we only had ten precepts, the way we lived was not like that. It was much more closely uh, aligned or it was similar to the Bhikkhuni ordination. But that put us in a bizarre position on the world Buddhist front because we were completely anomalous and that what we learned more recently was is that there actually isn't any legal standing for that ordination. So we were really in a weird position. So outside of Amravati and Chithurst, we were in really um, uh, kind of, uh, we were in a dislocated ground. You know, we couldn't, we, we didn't have any real place. So, and the irony was, is, is that as a community of sisters, the practice had so much integrity, both in terms of the meditation and the vinya, that it was often the case that we were exemplary, even if we were in a community of bhikkhunis, because of the way we practiced. So we had a, an unusual standing, and yet because of it being controversial then and controversial now, there wasn't a legal way of resolving the problem. 
So when this bhikkhuni ordination came up in August, I had been planning to go as an observer. And I had been thinking that, you know, this was something that I would need to navigate. But it had never occurred to me that I was participating in that ordination. And then the circumstances were such that the person who was the preceptor just asked me if I wanted to do it. The day before it was happening, in fact, the hour before <laughs> the, the rehearsal for it was happening. And, I mean, 20 years of complexity and confusion and uncertainty and all of the rest of it, it was like, you know, I needed a little bit of time to think about it. I had an hour to think about it. <laughs> that was in Sonoma, California. So the ordination that Amber mentioned, it's the first time in North America, probably in the Americas, because I can't imagine this has happened in South America, that there's been a bhikkhuni ordination of exclusively Theravadans, where the nuns were the ones conferring the bhikkhuni ordination and the monks giving the ordination, the monks were the one confirming it. So it's the first time it's happened, and so it was, you know, but I, I didn't have any... It never occurred to me, you know, to be part of it. So it was a, a quite unusual circumstance. What were some of the ways that the nuns wanted more equal participation, specifically that the venerable ones wouldn't let you have? The, um, uh, the right to talk about things that were important to us the uh, forums to discuss these things, the ability to be participating in ceremonies, the, uh, the negotiation of, of, of particular ceremonies that were not reflective of our lives. Um, Thank you for your, your courage. But when you were talking about this, it reminded me of struggles I've gone through in my Christian community. What, especially what you said about it was the mentors and the practice that now you're standing against to bear witness, but these were also the people who gave you the practice in the first place that gives you the strength to do this. And those mixed feelings that must come up mm-hmm. must be painful, but the love and the anger towards the same people must be done. Mm-hmm. Thank you for, for showing us how it can be done. Mm-hmm. Is there any um, dissension among the monks or any sense of flexibility among some more than others? There was, but the monks had to be very careful because if the monks were too verbal, they were um, severely uh, criticized and ostracized and shamed and publicly humiliated and at risk of being asked to leave. So they, there were plenty of monks who didn't feel comfortable with it, and only a very few that actually spoke up against it. And the few that spoke up against it had severe consequences that they had to negotiate. So I seem to recall from reading that I've done that one of the ways that we can get attached that we are cautioned against in in Buddhist and other literature, it's attachment to views, attachment to beliefs, attachment to opinions, right? So how do you negotiate? What's the difference in in your view between the kind of an attachment to a belief 
and a conviction that you want to stand by? That's a really important question. Let me think, how would I answer that? I just, my intuitive sense is it's a somatic difference. So a conviction is actually something I know in my bones. And a view is something that I know in my head. It's an idea that I have that I believe in, that I am willing to fight for. But a conviction is not conceptual. It's a different kind of knowing. And that different kind of knowing is much quieter, but much deeper. And it took me many, many, many years to be able to feel that. Because, you know, with all of this stuff, you know, over the years, obviously there would be times where issues would come up and there would be rub and there would be reactivity and I'd have a real clear idea this is wrong. And with that clear idea that this is wrong, there would be anger, okay? But the idea was different than the conviction. And until I had the conviction that this was wrong, that was when I was prepared to risk everything to stand on it. As long as it was just the idea that this was wrong, I was fighting. But I didn't have the courage or the confidence to risk everything to stand on it. Other than that, I don't know. Does everyone else have another way of describing it? What's the difference between an opinion or a view and a conviction? That's been my experience. What's your experience? As you were speaking, something did occur to me. As you were asking the question, and you were speaking about the difference between a view and a conviction, and I just started reflecting on that idea of something being somatic or in the body, you know, versus something that you can spin around in your head. And to me, that rings very true experientially that there's a sense of um, um, wisdom that comes from something that you just can feel and know very much in the body and it can't really be it doesn't seem as though it's about rationalizing and I'm remembering that the thing that occurred to me um, was with that idea about having attachment to views and opinions that being dangerous. Um, like the other idea that um, the things that we do, the decisions we make, and our actions that we take should be about not harming. And so, um, kind of coming back to that um, value and asking, is my attachment to this, whatever it is, is it you know, a conviction or if it's an opinion, is it harming in some way? And so, if it's um, violating you know, the human rights of someone to fully be respected and participate and be seen as an equal person of equal value and is that harming and might that mean it's coming from a place of attachment to a view rather than you know, a deeper conviction of what's really wise What was fascinating to me, because like, you know, many people ask, like you've asked, you know, what was the practice doing that people are end up in the space where they're coming up with this kind of stuff? And, I mean, it's, it's an important question. 
But I was asking one monk, he was a junior monk, you know, because, you know, the monks stopped talking to me, you know, so it was like there was no communication. And this one young monk, he was happy to say a few words, and I was delighted because nobody was saying anything. And, you know, he his whole thing was is that, you know, he could see that the monks and the nuns needed to separate. And, you know, that what I was doing was upsetting him because I was going against the, you know, what Ajahn Sumedho had set up and that there was a tremendous amount of faith and respect in him as a teacher. And then he said something else which was really interesting to me, which was, you know, he said something about the sisters are just interested in, he didn't quite use the word witchcraft, but it was like, you know, something akin to that, which was obviously of a totally different level than what he felt he was doing and the monks were doing in terms of practice. So we had been thingified in the sense that we were no longer human beings practicing on the path. We had, we had ascribed to views and values which made us significantly less human than then it justified what all was happening. And, and so that mechanism of disconnecting empathetically is then justified by the fact that, in his mind, he was quite sure that we were not actually practicing anywhere near that the same caliber of practice that they were. And then, therefore, what was happening was they were protecting the tradition and the teacher and the lineage, and that was the good thing. So there was there was clarity that what he was doing was right. Yeah. So you you didn't come. They they were using the term like heretic. Basically. He didn't use the word heretic, but but he didn't use that word. But basically, what he his sense was is is that our the way that we practice was so far removed from the true teachings as to be on a completely different path. You know. And. And then again, that helped me understand, you know, part of the psychological process of what was happening here. You know, I mean, I I keep hoping that a magnificent scriptwriter will do a movie. <laughs> I mean, the thing is 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 unfathomable to actually wrap your mind around, you know. And yet, psychologically, what's taking place is really important to understand. And, you know, Ken Wilber writes really clearly that at any point in history of the development of consciousness, at every point and at any point where there's a new paradigm that's emerging, there's a bloody war. And the people who are upholding the old paradigm, they will fight to death to keep the new paradigm from emerging. And for me... The sisters have been the embodiment of a new paradigm. And part of the reason why I see that is because the tradition has tended to emphasize the transcendent teachings over the imminent experience of staying in relationship. And because of the precariousness of our experience and the suffering that we had, we could not split that. We had to maintain the whole continuum. And so for us, we have absolute appreciation for the absolute truth, not at the expense of relationship and our relationship with the world. And that capacity to hold open the entire continuum is to me the expression of the new paradigm. That's it. And it is not welcome.
there's, there's your witchcraft right there. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> right, that whole imminence thing. That's right. It's not, and and that's that's what I was thinking. Like this is this is what I'm wrestling with, and I I often hear whether it's from the neo advaitists or it's the Buddhists. There's this there's this. Distri- distri- for, for people who write as much as these people do, there's still this tremendous distrust of the intellectual, of, of the intellect, right, of the mind. And there's this sense that if you just get to a transcendent enough place, a clear enough place, then the right thing to do simply arises. It's simply what is. This is what you hear all the time. And it's a lovely notion. It's a lovely idea that if we all got to the clearest place, we would all just poof. We would all just do the right thing. And not only would each of us do the right thing, all of us would do the right thing, and it would be the same thing. And there wouldn't be any need for all this messiness of, gosh, women coming to us with their problems. (laughs) Don't bother me with you. That's like so worldly. What do you think I came to the monastery to get away from? (laughs) it's not hard to understand what this would bring up for people especially if what they're really after is this transcendent straight up thing so yeah that whole imminence thing you're not the first to present that to to a transcendent tradition that doesn't want anything to do with it right and it's not just that the sisters have a monopoly on this, because, you know, the monks also have. But you see, what's happened is is that the monks who had a real appreciation of this, they were up against something that was so huge and so enormous and so unnegotiable that the only thing that they could see that they could do was leave. Whereas the sisters, like in my perspective, we have so little ground and we have so little to risk. It's like so... What am I losing if I try? <laughs> you know? And so I think the possibility that there is another way is something that the sisters can hold open in a way that the monks couldn't. So about 15 years ago, there was a whole bunch of monks that disrobed because they also had an insight into that. But they were up against the same concrete we were, and they couldn't see a way of allowing something new to emerge. But you see, for me, this bit here about being able to hold the whole continuum, that's really the thing that I feel my conviction about staying in robes is about. Because whether you actually are in robes or you're not in robes, that ability to hold open that whole continuum is the essence of what I feel is needed in our world today. All right? And I haven't found anything more powerful than the container that I've experienced in the monastic life to help focus and give the possibility to be able to do the work that's needed. And it is messy opening up this stuff that we don't want to look at and being able to integrate these transcendent teachings into the reality of our own personal pain and allow some of that to open and release to be able to stay in relationship through our resistances. But having done that, or as we do that, then our capacity to both stay present through the continuum is both greater, and our own ability to navigate our own personal emotional material is also greater. And the combination of these two greater things is to me the one 
pressing thing that I can see will be the difference that either shifts this world or doesn't in terms of having the ability to stay in empathetic relationship with people through a diversity of opinions as we begin to try and figure out some of the global problems that we're negotiating that no person or no group has the capacity by themselves to figure out. And so in a way, it's not being a Buddhist, it's not being a woman, and it's not being a nun that's actually compelling me it's the world, it's the land, it's the, the whole thing that we're in that is asking me to show up for this and see what happens. I have a question about this continuum that you so beautifully brought to us. Um, it's very clear to me how monastic life can go to the very heights of that continuum, to the complete heights of transcendence and knowing the absolute, knowing what's absolute true nature. But I do have a question. I hope I'm not going beyond boundaries. In terms of relationship, is monastic life, because there's no sexual intimacy, can you really have that real human, deep intimacy in, in monastic life? I'm curious about that. So obviously this is a big topic, and, you know, there, this whole topic of opening up to sexuality and what that means is, for many of us, a lifetime process. And that process is just as rich as a celibate as it is in relationship. The irony is, is, is that if a person is willing to go through the fire, and it is quite a fire, particularly when you're committed to celibacy, then the result is, is is that intimacy then is possible with everyone in every moment. It's not limited to your lover or your partner. And so the irony of celibacy is the profoundity of intimacy that it actually enables. The willingness to go through the fire is the gateway. And how many people are willing to do that? Not many. But it doesn't mean that it's not possible. I was wondering, um, as you were talking about what inspires you is the challenges that face the world, I was wondering in the monastery how much um, relationship there was with the challenges of the world? In other words, were these monks and these monks in leadership thinking about um, these problems that are out in the world, whether it's, you know, just ordinary suffering and the person in the, the next town over or something, or larger global problems, or was there more focus on, you know, isolation and transcendence and intense practice does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I know that I'm really the best person to speak for other people. You know, I can speak for myself, you know, but I don't know that I can, I can give voice to what other people's experiences are. I know there's funny things that happen in a monastery because, you know, while we don't watch television and listen to radio and many of us don't read the newspaper, we get things on an energetic level in a very direct way. 
So I remember when the Gulf War was happening, you know, many of us were in tears regularly about the anguish of that circumstance, even though we didn't have direct access to any of the news. So we were, we were, we were, we were plugged in, but on a different level than what we normally think of as being plugged in. So I also know that the power of the practice is hard to conceptualize. And, and I, don't, I don't feel that it's my job to judge other people and the way they, um, their priorities in practice. And there are values in just hanging out in a monastery and having a transcendent view. It's not my orientation towards practice, and it's not the kind of practice environment that I would like to set up. But there, there, is, there, there are values in doing that, even if it's not the, the, the ones that I most subscribe to. Um, what, I, what I did know was is that the, the blessing field of the monastery had an enormous effect, and it had a huge effect on the people who were both connected to the monastery at directly, as well as people who had indirect connection to the monastery. And it's, it's, again, it's not, it's hard to describe how that works or what that looks like, but it did. And so I think, you know, that, it, that there was a lot of value and goodness that came from that. Amber? Um, when you were just speaking a minute ago about the irony of um, intimacy, and you said for people who are willing to go through the fire. What did you mean by that? Sexual energy is a powerful energy. And, you know, as a celibate person, oftentimes it can be even more intense than if you're in relationship or you are in a position where those energies can be dispersed in other ways. And... The fire is the fire of being willing to see the intensity of that energy and to allow the desire component of it to transform so that it is operating not through uh, craving but through compassion and love. And again, you know, for me, sexual energy is a continuum. The sexual energy and the transcendent energy is on one continuum. It's not separate things. And so the sexual energy can be the life force energy that also is part of this transcendent longing to be um, at one with or not separate with or have this uh, union with that which is divine. And to, to be able to allow the full force of that life force energy or sexual energy to then move through and then to meet the craving and allow the craving to transform and allow, it's almost as if your nervous system has to get rewired, you know? And then as your nervous system begins to get rewired, there also is the recognition of the intensity of what kind of longing you're actually dealing with. You know, that craving to be in union with, to be one with, to melt into, 
to, to, to give oneself completely, you know, that is not trivial stuff. And yet, you know, because the energy is so strong, and then also because there's shame around taboo of breaking the precepts, and because people don't necessarily have confidence in how to navigate it, then rather than meet it, it can be either avoided or suppressed. And so it is beautiful when a person has the confidence to meet it and allow it to burn itself cool. And then the kind of radiance that you get is a radiance that is a fully embodied radiance. There's no dead zone. And then the heart is open to being able to connect intimately without it having to be personal. And I have a comment, I guess. Getting back to that great question that you asked about how do you know the difference between attachment to views and conviction? And I love what you said about it being in the body. And that really rang true for me. And the image I got when you were talking about that was the feeling of closedness versus the feeling of openness. And that sometimes a, a good litmus test I found is that does it require you to be closed to the experiences of others the way you were saying the monks were being closed to the experiences of the nuns and that is probably attachment to views and if you're opening and wanting to inquire and and wanting to incorporate others' views into it maybe that's more likely to be Mm -hmm. conviction because you're connected to others' views instead of resisting them attachment to views may separate separation does that you know that's beautiful yeah that's beautiful that is is I've certainly had that experience and asked myself that question. So thank you for Good. Ah, lovely. Maybe we can stop here. Yeah. So what I Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.